Romans chapter 8. And Father, bless now Your Word to our hearts. God, I am so thankful, week in and week out, that You have given us Your Word. And I never cease to be thrilled and touched and moved and changed by it. And I pray, Holy Spirit, by Your power, would You change us just a little bit more tonight and draw us a little nearer to Jesus. Solidify, strengthen our faith, Father. And for those of no faith or those of of weak faith, Lord, may there be encouragement and comfort in these words tonight. For it is Your Word we seek. Thank You, Father, for it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Verse 18, let's pick it up right there. And if you've forgotten the first half of the chapter, go back and listen to it. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory is beyond all comparison. Good or bad, personal victories or physical, emotional sufferings, nothing in this life can compare with the glory to be revealed to us. What we're going to experience, nothing, nothing in your life or mine can compare to that. We can't even comprehend it. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, momentary light affliction, which I love the way he terms that. If you look at Paul's life, he calls it momentary light affliction. Okay, stonings, beatings, shipwrecks, momentary light affliction, right? But he says it's nothing. It is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, Paul's a good Jew. Of course he would use a phrase like weight of glory because the Hebrew word for glory is kabod. And kabod means weighty. It means abundant, heavy. The heaviness of the glory of God. The weight of the glory. And Paul says, listen, if we do suffer, remember that we suffer, back in verse 17, with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. We're suffering with Him. Not just for Him. You know, not just in Him, but we suffer with Him. Why? Because we're being conformed to His image. And the more like Jesus we are, the more we're going to suffer when He suffers, the more we're going to tear up when He tears up, the more we're going to feel what He feels for a very lost and broken and dying world. And if we're being conformed to the image of God's Son, then we will share His feelings. However, don't forget that no amount of suffering can compare with the glory that is coming. We just sang the words, all of a sudden I'm unaware of these afflictions, eclipsed by glory. Even the thought of glory, even the recognition of coming glory, the glory of God, can completely douse afflictions if we will but stop and recognize it. And you know why glory outweighs suffering? Because it's heavier. Because the stuff of glory is heavy. Again, kabod, that Hebrew word. The Greek word, and get used to it, it's doxa. Doxa, where we get doxology. Where we sing of the glory of God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow is a doxology, a doxa of glory to His name. Doxa in the Greek means praise personified. It's the embodiment of splendor, of brightness, of radiance. It's called amazing might and demonstration of power. That's glory. It's all of that. Now I'm going to give you five things. If you're a note taker, if you want to outline the rest of the chapter, I'll give you five things to follow through tonight. They're not that significant, but if it helps, there you go. The first one is the weight of splendor. The weight of splendor, the full weight of His glory is going to be revealed to us. And we're not ready for it. We're not even close. What Moses asked for, show me your glory, but couldn't see it, would have killed him. What ruined Isaiah, woe is me, he said. When he got that vision in Isaiah 6 of the throne room of heaven. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm ruined. What a great phrase. Jesus ruins you for this life. 
Once you get a glimpse of glory, the glory that flattened the Apostle John to the floor is a heavy weight of glory. And were we to see it tonight, right here in these seats, we would all be instantly dead. Which is why seeing God's plan is the glory to be revealed to us. When we're past death, when we're beyond the halls of death, either through the rapture of the church or by dying and being raised to walk in a newness of life first, when He calls us to come home, either way, we'll be beyond death and so we will be able to see Him in His glory and it's going to blow our minds. In fact, I think most of us are going to stand there with our mouths hanging open for about, oh, I don't know, maybe a billion years. (laughs) And then we'll finally get to the worship because we're so amazed. Paul is now coming to a glorious apex in this section of his letter to the saints at Rome. The first section dealing with condemnation. Now this second section dealing with salvation and sanctification. Chapter 3, 21, all the way through the end of chapter 8. And that's what we finish tonight. He's building up. You could almost finish the letter at the end of chapter 8. But of course there's more to know. And we'll get there. But tonight we come to the apex of glory. And he says in verse 19, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Heads up, the sons of God are not angels. And you may know this and be aware of this, but the sons of God, these are the huiothesia. Which is that word I've mentioned to you, we've been talking about it since Christmas. The huiothesia, the sons of adoption. Creation is groaning, longing to see the revelation of the Huothesia. And you might say, well, why doesn't creation see it in us right now? Because it hasn't happened yet. Because the Huothesia, sons of adoption, have not yet been revealed. But hold that thought. Verse 20. Oh, we are moving tonight. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly... But because of Him, that is God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul says, man, right up to this writing, as Tertius sits there pinning uh, Paul's inspired dictation, his, his explanations. Paul says, up to this very moment, creation groans. And has been groaning since the very beginning. It's still groaning. Creation has been groaning since Adam and Eve bit the fruit. And subsequently bit the dust. <laughs> creation has been groaning. It is not something the creation wanted Needed, desired, longed for, but God subjected it. You might say, well, that's not quite fair. Why would God subject it to groaning? A groaning that took place the first several thousand years and now has continued on the last 2,000 years. The earth is in groaning. Why? Because God divinely bound creation to humanity. From the very beginning. He gave it into the hands of humanity, and as humanity goes, so goes creation, which answers the problem of global issues today. Matthew 24, verse 7, Jesus says, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. What do those two have to do with each other? Famines and earthquakes, what we might call natural disasters... And wars and rumors of wars and nations rising and kingdoms fighting, it's all connected to the same thing. Creation subjected to humanity. And in humanity's fall, creation falls. In humanity's futility, creation becomes futile. Humanity writhes in the pain of war and geopolitical conflict, and the earth itself suffers. So, Friday is Earth Day. I remember. It's the 46th annual Earth Day. First one was in 1970. Hey, I get it back in the 70s. But I remember as a kid, we'd all be carrying our little lunchboxes and our peachy folders to school with all the ecological symbols. It was called ecology back then when I was a youngin. And now it's environmentalism. And we all carried around our peachy folders to school. Sadly, the one thing 
that is most needed for the sake of the planet will not be recognized on Earth Day. The one thing that's necessary. You see, the greatest issue facing the planet today is not global warming. Shocker, I know, to hear that from me. It's not global warming. Let me recast it from a biblical perspective. It is global futility. And the creation is connected to humanity, and therefore creation is experiencing writhing in futility. Are you one of those global warming deniers? I love that. That's a great little label they've come up with. Global warming deniers. They're the bad people on the planet. Hey, it's the badness of humanity that's caused the Earth's issues in the first place. What I don't deny is I don't deny that the earth is dying. I don't deny global futility. But here's the difference between global futility and global warming. As Paul talks about the corruption of the earth, listen, we know the source of the corruption. And it's not the methane gas of humans and cows. (laughs) Which I could have said another way, but I chose not to. We know the source of the corruption. It's sin. Well, how can you connect something spiritual to something physical? That's how it works. That's exactly how it works. You don't do something in the physical realm without it affecting the spiritual. And you don't, don't do something spiritual without it affecting the physical. And I'll prove that to you in a little bit here. No, we know the source of the corruption and we know the Savior who will heal this world. And He's coming. And when He returns, He's going to bring about a remarkable restoration coming into the new kingdom. That's going to solve the earth's problems, not the 46th annual Earth Day. Sorry to say. But first, before He heals this world, this dying planet, it's going to come unhinged. He describes it this way, Luke 21-25, There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. And we've gotten symbolic signs of that, I think, already in the tsunami that hit, in the different global upheaval of of the planet. We're seeing these things and people are perplexed by them and upset by them and wondering what is going on here. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, Jesus says. And he's talking about the unfolding of worldwide tribulation. Boy, you think there's global warming now? Just wait till the heavens begin to come apart. And the sun burns out and darkness falls and we're already seeing the pains. Verse 23, Paul goes on, he says, And not only this, but also we ourselves, watch this, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our huiothesia. Our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That's it. That's the huiothesia. And we're waiting for it. Because it hasn't happened yet. We're longing for it to be the sons of God by the finalization of our adoption. Second thing to note here is the worth of sonship. The worth of sonship. Paul says it right here. In verse 23, he said it up above in verse 15. He says it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Sonship. Quiothesia. Bible students remember, Paul uses this phrase, this word, adoption as sons, the quiothesia, five times in his letters in the New Testament. Romans 8, 15, and 23, Ephesians 1, 5, Galatians 4, 5, and also we're going to see it in the next chapter, Romans chapter 9, verse 4, and there he's speaking of the adoption of sons of Israel. We'll get there again, as I said, next week. But back in verse 16, we read this. We read, His Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. So we know we're children of God, we're just not sons by adoption yet. And do you understand the difference? You become the child of God when you are born again. 
You belong to God as a born-again child, but you don't become a son by adoption, the inheritance and the adoption that all is wrapped up together until the revelation, until it all comes down and we return with Him. And then creation will go, Ah! The sons of adoption! The Weothesia! And the world will know. And we ourselves long for this and we groan for this, this realization of our inheritance as sons. And I'll say it again, ladies, yes, you are sons. Because why? If I have to be the bride, you have to be the sons. So don't forget that. It's totally fair. The worth of our sonship. No wonder believers groan. What do you mean? We groan because we know this is not the best life. We know it's not the ultimate. We know it's not going to be. And we know this because as Paul says, note this phrase, I love it, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And once you have the first fruits of the Spirit, what does that mean? It means we have tasted the goodness of God. We know the sweetness of the Son, the flavor of the Father. We've tasted and we have seen Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And once you get a taste of the Lord, there's no turning back. There's really no looking around because there's nothing better. The Bible tells us in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 3, like an apple tree, and I believe there's a spiritual picture painted, by the way, in the Song of Solomon. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among among the young men. This is now the, the bride talking. Okay, ladies, so we're all in. So is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, for his fruit was sweet to my taste. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's nothing on earth that tastes better than Jesus. His flavor, His goodness, His sweetness. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Wait a minute. Fallen away? Apostasy? Can you lose your salvation? Is that what he's saying there? Well, we'll talk about that when we come to the book of Hebrews. Talk out! But, but really, the reason I quoted that verse right now, we can talk about that and struggle through it, but here's what I believe the real point is. What he's really getting at there in Hebrews chapter 6. Regardless of what you think about apostasy and falling away and can you lose your salvation or any of that. What he's really getting at is that once you have sampled the sweetness of the first fruits of the Spirit, apostasy is ludicrous. It's just stupid. How could you? How could you taste what God has? Experience the Lord and apostatize. And by the way, meaning completely fall away, deny, reject, and walk away and say, I want nothing to do with you. How could you do that? The first fruits of the Spirit. Man, we've tasted this. And by the way, there's another way to look at it. Not just that it's sweet and tasty, but the first fruits are the best fruits. Remember when it comes to our offering, our giving, God says, I want you to bring the first fruits. Bring your first 10%. Into the storehouses and see if I don't bless you richly, he talks about. Bring the first fruits. Why? Because the first fruits are always best. Honey crisp apples in the early fall. Mm. They're big and sweet and meaty, and then three months later, they're like these tiny little podunk, pathetic things. Or cara cara oranges. If you've ever had those, the deep red colored oranges. In the early spring, so sweet. Donut master donuts in the early morning. I mean, you know what I'm getting at here? The first fruits. And to be born again, to believe without having seen, to be fed on the first fruits of grace, how sweet it is. And that's what we have, and that's why we groan. We've tasted, we've seen, we know there's better. And we have to deal with some of the stuff in this world. It just doesn't taste so good anymore. 
used to. It used to before I tasted the sweet first fruits. It used to taste pretty good. I used to love Pop-Tarts. I've told you this. I think I went two or three years preaching the values and extolling the virtues of Pop-Tarts. And since I got a little healthier, Pop-Tarts are sick. They're like eating cardboard with like red paint in the middle. They're disgusting. Why do you why would you why would you go back? No, no, I'd rather, much rather have a honey crisp apple, cara cara, orange donut, master donut, whatever it takes. Verse 24. And so we're waiting eagerly. We've tasted the first fruit. We're looking forward. We're looking to our adoption. Verse 24. For in hope, note this, we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? Get this. It is not that we hope we'll be saved. No, we know we've been saved. We just haven't seen it fully played out yet. But we know. We know we've been saved and therefore we hope for the revelation of our adoption. We're looking to that. Verse 25, he says, For if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for that. And my friends, that is faith. What a beautiful definition right there of faith. In fact, it parallels Hebrews 11.1. Let me read it again. If we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Or, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Those two passages, those two verses go hand in hand. Paul, I believe, wrote both. And so he's stating a beautiful fact of the assurance of what we hope for. That's faith. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. I love it. The world does not get that. Prove it to me. Show me. I can't. I mean, I can give you all the facts in the world, and trust me, there are dozens upon dozens upon hundreds upon hundreds of facts that lead to the proof of Scripture and prophecy and Jesus. It's all there. But truly... Ultimately, you have to come to faith in something you can't see. And blessed are those who believe yet have not seen. I mean, that's where the real blessing is. And that's faith. And he says, for the things which are seen, they're temporary. But the things which are not seen, these are eternal. So conviction and perseverance, eagerness, these are all synonymous with faith. Faith is not flimsy. Faith is not blind. Faith is convicted. It perseveres. It is an eager thing. On the contrast, apprehension and ambivalence, apathy, that's the stuff of doubt. What do we do when we feel that way? What do you do when you begin to feel a bit apprehensive about Jesus and maybe the Bible and maybe church? Maybe something's happened between you and a a sister or a brother. Maybe a church just didn't measure up to what you had hoped it would be early on. Maybe you've got some problem in life and, and suddenly your faith starts to get a little shaky and you're feeling apprehensive. Do I really believe this? Or some feeling ambivalent, I don't care anymore, or apathetic, I just can't get there tonight. Do you feel that way tonight, anyone? If you do, i got a one-word answer for you. It is so simple. Pray. Just pray. Well, what good does that do? Dr. Andrew Newberg is Director of Research at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and Medical College in Pennsylvania. He's written a very interesting book. It's called How God Changes Your Brain. And from a medical perspective, he presents extensive research into the impact of prayer and worship on brain health. It's fascinating. There's a whole article on this. I don't have time to read it all to you. But in it, Dr. Newberg identifies faith, get this, faith from a medical perspective as the single most powerful way to maintain a healthy brain. Wow. Here are some findings. He points out the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe of the brain is activated when people pray. Based on dozens upon dozens of brain scans and watching people in behavior and having them behave in certain ways, when people prayed, the brain scans showed all of a sudden the frontal lobe gets very active. 
That's interesting. It's because he surmises, it's because of the deep focus that comes into play when we begin to pray. When we begin to really focus in on Jesus and talk to Jesus and pray in the Spirit to the Lord, suddenly the frontal lobe gets ignited. It comes alive. And listen to this, an active frontal lobe protects this area against age-related deterioration and dementia. You want to avoid dementia? Pray your brains out. (laughs) Just pray, man. Because again, it lights it up, the frontal lobe. How about this? The anterior cingulates. You all know what that is in the brain. It's more to the center of the brain. In fact, Dr. Newberg calls it the neurological heart of the brain. This is most stimulated by compassion. So if you're praying for someone and you're empathizing with them and your heart is breaking with them or you're rejoicing with them and you're compassionate, this vital region in the center of the brain lights up. It starts to get exercised. So you have the frontal lobe ignited. You've got this anterior cingulate ignited. How about the parietal lobes of the brain? I know you were all asking about those. (laughs) The parietal lobes of the brain are where we go about self-separation. That is, they are highly activated by independence, individuality, self-centeredness, and aloneness. Loneliness tends to highlight that area of the parietal lobe, and it's not a healthy thing. In this case, it's not healthy for it to be all lit up. You know what happens when you worship? It deactivates. The parietal lobes calm down which allows a greater sense of unity with God and fellowship with other believers. Because that's what you're doing. You're joining in a congregational process. And by the way, that's not something you can do on your own. You need the body of Christ. And it happens in corporate worship. The parietal lobes settle down. The limbic system, last one, there are plenty more, but I'll just give you this. The limbic system is the most carnal and instinctual system in the brain. It's the one that lights up when Cheryl jumps out from behind the door and goes, boo! And I go, ah! That's the limbic system responding. Okay? The limbic system is also associated with anger, with guilt, with anxiety, fear, depression, resentment, and pessimism. When all these negative thoughts are churning, the limbic system is hard at work. And yet, when we pray, it deactivates. It calms down. Physical proof, physical uh, manifestation here of what happens when we're simply praying. You want to strengthen your brain? You want to lengthen your relationships? You want to dampen depression and anger and all these negative emotions? Pray. Just pray. Well, does it matter who you pray to? I mean, can any old religious experience do that physically? Not if you desire the true spiritual benefit as well. Oh sure, there are certain types of meditations that they've shown have effect on the natural brain waves and and brain health and what your brain does. And you can do that, but only so far. It's still temporal. If you want the spiritual benefit of prayer, then you've got to move into, number three, the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit, which is intimately connected to prayer. Watch this, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. That word weakness is asthenia. It's actually an English word. It was originally a Greek word. We just took the exact word and modified it into English. Asthenia, which means weakness, infirmity, and disease. So quite literally, what Paul is writing here is the Spirit helps us in our disease. Helps us in our infirmity, in our sickness as well as in our weakness. This isn't just when you're having a tough day. This is when you are dying. This is when your body is sick. There's physical ramification, again, to spiritual praying. And so in this way, the same way, what does he mean in this same way? In the same way that faith works, so prayer works. It's unseen. In the same way the Spirit helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Just like faith, 
Three things to know quickly about the work of the Spirit. Number one, the work of the Spirit, like faith, is beyond sight. Beyond sight. You will not always see the Spirit at work. You will not always hear the Spirit or feel the Spirit. Sometimes what you feel is just emotion, man. I'm being honest. You won't always feel the work of the Spirit, but you will know the work of the Spirit. Why? Because weakness subsides. Strength increases. Peace replaces doubt. We've said several times, if you are uncertain and you are anxious about something, God's probably not in it. But if peace comes, good chance God's doing His work. If you've prayed about something and you have peace about it, I'll give you an example. It's kind of a bummer. But we were talking about and excited about doing a a preschool here out of the church. And right now it's got to go on hold. Which bums me out. Did, Did Leslie call you, by the way? No? Okay. So you're hearing from the first time from me. Ah, okay. We'll talk afterwards. We're having to put it on hold because we found in the county paperwork for the building of the building no child care or daycare of any sort or educational care like that during the week here because the planes are flying over and it's just too loud for the kids. (laughs) Global futility is what I call it. Um, We're going to work on that. And we're gonna, we're, we gotta pray about it. We gotta talk about it. But, but here's my point in it. Leslie was looking up the paperwork and trying to find it. She found it. She read it. And you would think, because she was hyped to the sky on this. She was so excited about this. She read it and she said, you know what, Rick? I immediately felt peace. That tells me that the Lord is saying, hang on. Hang on. It's not a no, but perhaps it's a not yet. And so peace comes. We know the Spirit is at work. The mindset on the flesh is death. Remember that? Verse 6 back in chapter 8. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Don't underestimate that. Don't think it's just some kind of weird thing, thing that you generate in yourself. It's not. It is the legitimate work of the Holy Spirit and He is beyond sight. The work of the Spirit, number two, goes beyond words. Beyond words. Keep your finger there for a moment and go back to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Just three books back to your left. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. And this is amazing. It's wonderful. Mark chapter 7, verse 31 says, Again, he, that is Jesus, went out from the region of Tyre and came through Zidon to the Sea of Galilee. So that's, he was up in Lebanon. And he came down from Lebanon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. So that is on the the eastern side of the Galilee. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd, which I think shows great compassion, by himself, and he put his fingers into his ears, which again, what's he doing? He's compassionate. He's explaining to this deaf man who can't hear him by word, he's explaining what he's about to do. I'm working on your ears here. And then we're told, interestingly, it says, after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. Touch the man's tongue. Why? Because that implied healing. There was a a belief that there was healing property in, in saliva. Now whether or not there was, was not the point. It was understood culturally. And so Jesus is giving cultural example, fingers and ears, saliva to tongue, I'm healing your ears, is what he's saying. And watch this. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. And the impediment of his tongue was removed. And he began speaking plainly. He gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. Isn't that fantastic? The mute guy now can't shut up. (laughs) They were utterly astonished. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Well, that's a fulfillment of Messianic prophecy, Isaiah 36 tells us. 
that Messiah would come along and heal the deaf and the blind. And so here he heals a deaf man. And they're amazed and he's proclaiming. But note what Jesus did. It says there that with a deep sigh, a deep sigh, the word in the Greek is stenadzo. Same word is applied in Romans 8.26 when we read that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The word groaning is stenadzo. It means to groan or to sigh. Understand this, that the Greek noun form here in verse 26, groanings, is connected directly to the intercession of the Spirit because it's dative. Okay, that's, that's a noun form. It's the dative form, and it means the groanings belong to the intercession which belongs to the Spirit. Guess what? You're not the one groaning. You're not the one sighing. The Spirit is. You pray. You can't even find the words. And it's not that you go, and the Spirit goes, okay, what He means by that is, it's quite the opposite. I come to the end of my words, I don't even know what to pray. I'm like, and the Spirit goes, and Jesus grabs the sigh and articulates it to the Father. How do you know that? Verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now I'm getting ahead of myself, but check this out. The groanings, the sighs, these are the sound of the Spirit. This is the voice of the Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit when we pray. So the whole concept, the whole idea of praying in the Spirit is allowing the Spirit to take our hearts, our desires and to translate them to Jesus who translates them to the Father. Ephesians 6.18, Paul says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Jude writes, Beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands. But in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul starts to get into prayer languages. I know that makes some people uncomfortable because they think, okay, that's that Pentecostal Holy Spirit stuff. Well, it is Holy Spirit stuff. And yes, I guess you could say it's Pentecostal because, you know, connecting it to Pentecost. But it's not some charismatic weirdness. To pray in the Spirit, prayer language. Well, you may disagree, but your pastor absolutely believes that this is legitimate. And we will talk more about it when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. I know I'm making you wait, but 1 Corinthians is just around the corner, gang. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14, listen to what Paul says. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. Okay? And he says, but my mind is unfruitful. So he's talking there about someone praying in such a way that their spirit's praying, but they don't understand. There's not comprehension about what's being prayed. And then he says, in 1 Corinthians 14-15, what is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit. And I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit. And I will sing with the mind also. That is, I will sing what is understandable and articulated. And we sing these songs together and we read the words, but I'm also going to sing in the Spirit, man. And it's different. I'm going to pray articulatedly. It's not a word. Articulately. I'm going to pray words and I'm going to bring those words to the Father and I'm going to cry out to the Spirit with articulate language and you all will hear and understand. But there is a prayer in the Spirit that you're not going to understand. Which is why I don't stand up here and do it in the mic. Because it doesn't edify the body. It edifies the self. Again, more on that when we get into 1 Corinthians 14. I don't mean to freak anybody out, but I do want to ask you this question. When Jesus healed the man in Mark chapter 7, the deaf man, 
with a deep sigh, might he have been praying in the Spirit? Well, of course he was praying in the Spirit. It's his Spirit, right? Whether he was praying in a prayer language in that moment or not is beside the point. We make so much out of all this. The bottom line is praying in the Spirit, inviting the Spirit to intercede, inviting the Spirit to pray what you don't even know how to pray, and He sighs and Jesus hears. And Jesus intercedes as I said. Verse 27, He who searches the hearts, and that's Jesus. John chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, tells us He knows what is in the heart of man. He's the searcher of hearts. And He knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all active in our prayer. It's not just our brains that are lighting up or calming down. It's the Trinity of the Godhead responding because God loves when His people pray. And I will go so far as to say, and it doesn't matter if you're praying in a prayer language, or you don't understand that, or you reject that, and you're just praying articulate words. doesn't matter. God loves when His people pray. So pray. However you know how to pray, pray. Because the Spirit responds. He sighs. You know there are good sighs and there are bad sighs. I experience both, sometimes on a daily basis, depending on what my kids are doing. They'll do something adorable and I'll go, love them. They'll do something exasperating and I'll go, love them. (laughs) And I think the Spirit sighs based on what He's hearing and, and it's translated. It's beautiful. The work of the Holy Spirit is beyond sight, beyond words, and is by the Son, because Jesus is the great intercessor. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 says, Through Him we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, have our access by the Spirit to the Father. Again, Jesus, Spirit, Father, all together. Hebrews 7, 24, Jesus, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the great intercessor. Paul will affirm this again a few verses down in verse 34. Skip ahead and just look at that real quickly. He says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. And John says in 1 John 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Satan can condemn all he wants. we got an advocate. We have the best defense attorney in history, in eternity, and that is Jesus Christ. Verse 28. And note this, because I said it was Son, it was Spirit, to Son, to Father. Listen to the Father respond. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Spirit sighs, Son intercedes, Father works it into good, even the bad situations. For those, verse 29, whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren, And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. And we studied that in depth on Sunday. And if you missed that, go back and listen to it. It's one of the most important, I think, teachings in the book of Romans. Rick, didn't you say that about the previous teaching? Yes, I did. Um, I do want to point out one thing here. And that's in verse 29, which says, So that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Please understand... When the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn, it is not saying He is a created being. It is saying He is the firstborn by sonship. He is the firstborn in terms of inheritance. He's the eldest son. He's the one that the full inheritance is passed on to. In Jewish thought, the firstborn didn't mean the created one. It meant the one who has the inheritance. And Jesus has the inheritance as the firstborn. And he comes along and he says, and I'd like to share it with you. But that's why he's called the firstborn. Now, keep going. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
who is against us. Opposition in this world to the church is growing. Is it not? I mean, not to be paranoid, but don't we see it in our culture? Opposition to Christianity and Christian things is growing. So what? Honestly, what does it matter if God is for me? God is for me. Say that with me. God is for me. Say it like you mean it. God is for me. That's remarkable. That's fantastic. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. What you just said is proof positive that the deep, personal, passionate love of God now comes pouring off the page. God is for us in four simple words. If you're having a hard day, stop and say, God is for me. Who can be against me? Who can be? Who possibly could be opposed to me? God is for me. But how can we be sure? Number four, the wisdom of sacrifice. Number three was the work of the Spirit. Number four is the wisdom of sacrifice. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Now Paul is a Jew. Don't forget that. He is speaking in an incredibly Jewish way right now. When he says, He who did not spare his own son. Many believe and understand this very Jewish example was in Paul's mind when he said, He who did not spare his own son. Who would Paul as a Jew be thinking about? Abraham. Exactly. Genesis 22 verse 2 says, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. First mention of the word love in the Bible is right there. Your only son whom you love, Isaac. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Mount Moriah. The threshing floor of Aruna, the temple mount. So Abraham goes up there with Isaac to offer him because God told him to, asked him to. And Abraham, as a man of faith, just had to assume God's going to resurrect my son because he wouldn't give me my son and promise me an inheritance through my son and that all the world would be blessed through this son and then kill him. So I may have to kill him, but he's going to rise or something's going to happen. Such was the faith of Abraham. They go up the mountain. He puts wood down for sacrifice, builds an altar, puts wood on it. You remember Isaac? Probably around 30 years old, by the way. Not a little kid. Isaac says, Father, where's the wood for sa- or where's the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb. And then he binds Isaac, puts him up on the altar, which shows me as great a faith in Isaac as it does in Abraham. Because a 30-year-old man should be able to overpower a 100-year-old man. And he lays down, bound, and Abraham lifts the knife. And in verse 12 of Genesis 22, God says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And the old rabbis have always taught that the binding of Isaac was the definitive example of redemptive sacrifice of redemptive love a father that was so willing to sacrifice his only son and Paul now draws off of that you want to know love? you want to understand love? you wonder if God loves you? he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all Back in Romans 5, verse 8, Paul said God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If anyone ever asks you, how do I know God loves me? He sacrificed His Son for you. Who would do that? I think about my sons, Corey, Hayden, and little David. And i got to be honest, I love you all, but not enough to sacrifice any one of the three of them for you. God did. Why? To prove His love. 
He gave us the example of Abraham to prove the love of a father for a son and how intense and how deep it truly is. And then he comes along and he actually follows through. He stopped Abraham. He did not stop the Roman soldiers from driving the nails into his hands and feet. Lifting up and dropping the cross down into its place. He did not stop the murder of his own son. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him, that is with Jesus, freely give us all things? And Jesus said in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. He says, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Anything? Ownership of the donut master? I mean, anything, Lord? All things? Get this. Understand this. You who have tasted the first fruits of the Spirit. God freely gives all things with the Son. Freely. That is, what He gives does not bind us up or tie us down. What He gives brings pure, perfect freedom. So no, He's not going to give you something that's going to tie you down. He's not going to give you something that's going to bind you to the altar of sacrifice because Jesus was already bound. Jesus already took the place that we might be free. Jesus said in John 15, 7, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Why? Because what I ask is what He has already put in My heart to ask. His words, His will, His desires come flowing out of Me, and so I begin to pray what He wants. And He does it. And He answers those prayers. He says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. I not only taste the sweetness of the first fruit, I now get to bear that fruit? Cheryl and I have talked about planting a couple of honey crisp apple trees in our backyard, just so we can have our own, you know? Now I get to bear the fruit. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and yes, all these things will be added to you as well. But verse 33, Paul says again, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Back to the question of verse 31. Who is against us? Who would bring a charge against us? There's one I can think of. Satan brings the charges. He lives for it. Satan is the condemner. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. Which means while you were worshiping tonight, Satan was accusing you of something. And if Jesus is your advocate, Jesus was saying, Nah, don't listen to him, Father. He's got nothing on these. But he is accusing. It's what he does. Now, check this out. The Hebrew Scriptures first revealed Satan as the accuser. All the way back, 400, 500 years before Christ came through the prophet Zechariah. It's a really interesting story. It's a vision Zechariah receives. Zechariah chapter 3. And he says, He showed me the high priest. That was Joshua at the time. He showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Zechariah gets this vision. Joshua is standing there at the right before God with Satan accusing him, hurling accusations at him. And Joshua is the high priest standing before God. Think about this, Bible students. What should the high priest be wearing when he is standing before God? We're hearing rumblings. He's wearing the holy garments, right? He's wearing the high priestly breastplate and the mitre. He's, he's wearing the robes of the high priest with the pomegranates. And we talked about Sunday, the little bells, so that we could hear them ringing inside the temple in the Holy of Holies. That's what Joshua should be wearing. But in Zechariah's vision, he sees Satan accusing and Joshua standing there in filthy rags. 
Filthy rags. The vision, Zechariah hears God rebuke Satan for even bringing the accusation against the high priest, and then he does something awesome. Zechariah 3 verse 4, he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to them, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and will clothe you with festal robes, robes of celebration. And that's what he does for the royal priesthood. He removes from us the filthy garments and He puts on us the high priestly garb, the festal robes, the party clothes. Why does He do this? Because the righteousness of the highest, most priestly among us is filthy rags. On our own, the best that we can muster is disgusting. Isaiah talks about this. Isaiah 64 verse 6. All of us, and become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. But, Isaiah 61 verse 10, He says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garment, garland or as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Connected to that, Revelation 19, verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her. Note that. It was given to her. Just as God gave to Joshua in the vision the festal robes, so it is given to the bride of Christ, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Which, as we've talked about before, means even our righteous activity was given to us. Even the good things we do in the name of Christ, we do because He empowered us to do them. He led us to do them. It's all His righteousness that He wraps us with. Now, Satan's the accuser. Who would accuse us? Who can oppose us? Paul asks. Listen to the context of where Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Again, Revelation 12.10. Here's the whole verse. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. It is in the context of the victory of Christ that the accuser is shut up and thrown down in light of the authority of Jesus. Awesome. By the way, back in Zechariah's vision, Zechariah chapter 3, listen to how it ends. God says, now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. This vision of Joshua and his men was a picture. I believe a prophetic picture of the church, of the royal priesthood. And of what God was about to do, he says, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. The branch? You know who the branch is. Jesus Christ. Number five, fifth and final point tonight, the wonder of separation. The wonder of separation. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So again, He is our advocate. Who tries to condemn? Doesn't matter. God justifies and Jesus advocates. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now get this. When it says the love of Christ, whose love is this? Is it my love for Him or is it His love for me? It is His love for me. Be very clear about this. What can separate me from the love of Christ? Hey, lots of things can separate me from my love for Him. My own stupidity can do that. My own rebellion, my cluelessness, my wandering off like a dumb sheep. I can do those things. But nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. 
who loves me, who loves you, there can be no doubt that Paul is talking about the love of Jesus Christ, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Alfred, in his commentary on Romans, said, Having shown that God's great love to us is such that none can accuse us or harm us, the Apostle now asserts the permanence of that love under all adverse circumstances. It is by that love that we are enabled to obtain the victory over any adversity. Not my love for Him, His love for me. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Do you know what those words mean? Exactly what they read. I started to go in and break each one of them down. That's like a separate study all by itself, but they're very explicit and well translated. Nothing. Nothing can separate us. None of these things. Just as it is written, verse 36, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us, which there confirms that it's the love of Christ. And it is because of His love that we who should be slaughtered sheep are instead set free. I love it. We're conquering sheep. And where do you see that? Conquering sheep? Who's going to put together an army of sheep to go up against anybody? They'll just scatter in every direction. (laughs) But we are conquering sheep. And suddenly the sheep who are lined up for the slaughter... A totally different thing happens. In fact, it's described in Psalm 100. Let me just read it to you. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Now get this picture. Sheep of His pasture. You've just come out of the pasture and we're told in verse 4 to enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and His faithfulness to all generations. Sheep, come on into the gates. Now sheep are dumb. They would enter His gates and be slaughtered. Because that was the only reason for a sheep to come into the courts of the temple. To enter into the gates of God, a sheep came for one reason only. And that was to be led up to the altar of sacrifice and there to be slain. But in Psalm 100, the sheep are told, go in and praise the Lord. Why would a sheep, any thinking sheep in his right mind... Enter the gates of the temple and the altar of sacrifice. The only one who would do it is one who has no fear of death. No finding of guilt, no worry of separation. Because as Revelation 17.14 tells us, the Lamb will overcome. Because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. The sheep are set free because the Lamb of God was slain in our place. Back in Romans 8.38 For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I call that the wonder of separation. Wait a minute, but you said nothing can separate us. Yeah, here's the wonder of separation. First of all, understand that he's talking here about our salvation, the culmination of all of these chapters. Now he comes to a head and says, nothing can separate you, which means there's no fear, there's no fire, there's no darkness, there's no despair, there's no gnashing of teeth, there's no eternal aloneness. None of that matters. And this is the worth, the value, the wonder of separation. We are not just separated from sin and death and hell. We are separated to Jesus. And nothing can separate us from Him. 
Father, what a wonderful word. I needed to hear it again this week. Thank you. We need to be assured of these things again and again. And so we praise You that You have magnified Your Word alongside all Your name. We thank You, Lord, that You have chosen tonight to bring such wonderful encouragement and comfort. I pray, Father, strengthen our faith. Separate us unto Yourself. Make us a people of Your own choosing. A people of Your own will and purpose. And Father, may we shine the same love of Jesus in the world. It is a a globally futile world. We recognize that. We know that. May we not be blind to the hurting and the exasperation and the fear all around us. But Lord, may we bring this message of love wherever we go. As we lift up the name of Jesus Christ. And we do so tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.